All right, well, we are here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and um, if you'll turn there with me, we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. But I've been thinking about this this week. Uh, this is the third sermon uh, through chapter 1, and it, each one of these sermons is on an aspect of a prayer, Paul's prayer. And so I've been thinking about what you can learn about a person from their prayer life. And it's kind of a dangerous thing. I write out my journals, write out my prayers in a journal, sorry. And I, I would not want anybody, I wouldn't want y'all, I wouldn't want my wife, I wouldn't want my kids to read my innermost prayer thoughts. I pour out my heart before the Lord in that journal. And so I think you could probably learn an awful lot about a person through their prayer life. You learn their anxieties, their worries, their struggles, their fears. They tell God things they'd never tell another human being for a million dollars. They wouldn't tell them, but they tell God in their prayer life. And when we look at Paul's prayer, an interesting thing happens is that he begins with praise. We saw that the first week, that um, all of God's blessings are ours in Christ. And then we saw last week how he opens up those spiritual blessings and explains them, I like to think of it as a window into what God intends to do for the whole world. That these blessings in our lives are just a glimpse of what God intends to do for everyone, for the whole, for the whole cosmos, remaking the world to be new. But today we turn the page to a different kind of prayer. Not prayers of praise, but prayers of intercessions. And he prays for the Ephesian church. Now, I have experience praying for churches. Y'all have experience praying for churches. And usually what I pray for a church is for safety. You know, Lord, keep us safe. Uh, bless us. I want prosperity. I want our budgets to be balanced. I want us to be able to do all the ministry we feel like God's calling us to do. I want our pews to be full. I want success. God, bless our church. Give us success in the mission you've called us to. But Paul's prayer is not for success. It's not for security. It's not for prosperity. Instead, he prays that they would know God more deeply. Y'all probably already picked up on that as we were reading it just a few minutes ago. That He says he wants them to know what is, what is, what is. He gives three facets that we're going to see in a second. But he wants the church to have a spirit-given, ever-deepening, knowledge of who God is and what God is doing in us and what God has done in Christ. That is today's sermon in a sentence. It should be there on your sermon notes if you grab some of those as you came in. You could find that on the website cbcluling.com slash bulletin. If it were on the screen, I'd tell you to just look up there and write it down, but it's not. So what, what Paul wants for the Ephesian church is what I want for you. I want you to have a spirit-given, ever-deepening knowledge of what God is doing in, in your life and what he's already done in Christ. And at the end of today's message, I'm going to tell you why that's so important. Without it, you'll never have the life you want to have. Our world will continue to disintegrate and fall apart. Knowledge of God is the most important thing any person could have. And so that's what we're going to see this morning here in Ephesians chapter 1. But first, let's jump right in. We're going to look at uh, verses 15 and 16 to see Paul's prayer of thanksgiving first. So he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So last week we concluded in uh, verse 14, and we saw how Paul had gotten a message that the church in Ephesus had just exploded. 
that he was there for a little while, and then uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos are there, and they're preaching the message about Jesus, and apparently the church expands and grows. And so Paul sends this letter uh, as an expression of his thanksgiving of what God has done in Ephesus while he's been away, and he wants to build them up, instruct them, and that's what this letter is. But he says he gives thanks without ceasing for the concrete work of God in their lives. He, he identifies two things, your faith in God and your love towards all the saints. Right? Faith and love, these are cardinal virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. He sees these present in the Ephesian church, and so he gives thanks to God because surely they are evidence that God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing. They are the mark of the Spirit. We saw that in verse 13 and 14 last week. They're sealed by the Spirit now to display to everyone that they belong to God. But even as Paul recognizes and gives thanks for the evidence of God's work in them, he's not content with faith and love. He wants more for them. It's like a dad who sees potential in their children and whose greatest desire is that they grow up and achieve that potential and do great things in the world. Paul sees that in the Ephesians, and he's thankful for what God has begun, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He wants more for them. And so he prays that the Ephesians would experience this spirit-given, ever-deepening knowledge of God. And he identifies this in verses 16 and 17. He says, I do not give thanks, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul's thanking God and remembering them in his prayers all the time that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of God. Now, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I went to school to know how to... You think about that. What did I go to school for? I forget. But I went to school, I think, to, to teach people how to grow in Christ, how to know more about God, how to live more faithful, productive lives in the kingdom. And my typical way to do that is what I'm doing right now. If, if I see an issue in a person's life or an issue in our church, I want to teach it out of them. So I identify a sermon series or a teaching series or a book maybe to give somebody, and I, I want to teach them out of whatever they're in, whatever issue, whatever gap in knowledge is there. I want to put them in a classroom and help them learn it. But Paul understood that the knowledge the Ephesians needed wasn't primarily academic or, or even intellectual, which is, you know, probably a temptation that we all fall into from time to time to intellectualize knowledge of God. But what Paul knows is that the knowledge of God the Ephesians really need, the, the knowledge that you and I need, is a personal and relational knowledge that can only come from God the Spirit. And so Paul says that he prays that God gives them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, these two words are important. Wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom's not facts. Wisdom's not a vocabulary list or a glossary. Wisdom is a God-given ability to see through the facts, to understand their connection and their deeper meaning and how they change a person's life. That's what Paul wants for the Ephesians. He's already talked about wisdom. He said in verse 8 that God lavished his grace on us in all wisdom and insight. And now he's saying that the same wisdom that characterizes God's own 
display and lavishing of grace is the wisdom that the Holy Spirit can give to me and you. That God's wisdom is ours. That's what James says too. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. So Paul says he wants us to have wisdom, to know how to see through things and understand what God's up to and how it changes our lives. The second thing is just as important. He says he wants us to have revelation in the knowledge of him. And I try not to throw around Greek words because I hardly know Greek. Just a little bit of tidbit of information for you to know something about me. Uh, I don't know it, but I like this word because it's apocalypse. Um, revelation is apocalypsis. And the idea behind this word, this, this concept of revealing something, is simply to disclose it, to unveil it. Something that's hidden is now known. And Paul wants that for the Ephesians. He wants them to know things that are hidden. He wants them to have the Spirit so they can see things that God's disclosing. And Paul talks about this later in Ephesians chapter 3 when he, he talks about his own life. And he says that the message about Jesus that he's preaching um, comes directly from God. He says in Ephesians 3, 3, that it came to him by a revelation just as it had been revealed, he says in verse 5, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, and this is crazy, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and you read through the second half of the book of Acts, you, you get a pretty detailed description of, of what he went through. Um, Paul didn't walk around with Jesus. He, he didn't get the three and a half years of hands-on ministry training that Matthew got, right, or that Peter got. Instead, Paul has a personal encounter with the risen Lord on a road to Damascus, and then he disappears. And he goes into the Arabian desert. And while he's there, he receives a revelation from God. Jesus shows up and gives him the gospel message that he had given one-on-one -on -one with the disciples for three and a half years. He gave that to Paul too. And over and over, Paul says, I didn't get this from any man. This is not a man's gospel. I got this from the Lord himself. And Ephesians 3, 3, he says he got it by way of revelation. That the Spirit had been given to him just as it had been given to the apostles and the prophets to disclose to unveil the truth about Jesus so that Paul could preach it to the Gentiles. And now, he's saying that the same thing that happened for the apostles, the same thing that happened for the prophets, the same thing that happened to Paul, is his daily prayer request for the church in Ephesus. That God would grant to them a spirit of wisdom, being able to see through the facts, to understand their connection and how they changed their lives, and the spirit of revelation to see things that were formerly hidden, that are now disclosed, in the knowledge of God. Paul wants them to know God. Do y'all get that? Over and over, any way you turn it. Paul wants them to know God more deeply. But the most important part about it is how they're going to possess this knowledge. You can't get wisdom on your own. Life experience is one thing. Wisdom something else. What Paul is looking for is a knowledge of God that comes directly from the Spirit. Because without the Spirit, we'll never gain it. We'll never gain the knowledge of God he's talking about. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world but the spirits who from God. 
that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So here's a, here's a lesson for you. God gives you the Spirit, yes, to enable you to live a life that's pleasing to Him, to convict you of sin when you go astray, but more than anything, to give you a direct connection to know God intimately and personally. And without it, you're lost. Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit, we're no, we can get nowhere when it comes to knowledge of God. But with the Spirit, we can know the deep and hidden things of God un unveiled by him to us. And so it shouldn't surprise us with what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, that there is a great segment of our world that does not seem to even know up from down and top from bottom. You talk about the things of God, what's true and what's right and what's good, and I think it's offensive, backwards, folly. But these things are spiritually discerned. And so Paul prays that the people who have the Spirit would know God and to grow in that knowledge of Him. And then he identifies three ways where this knowledge really comes to fruition in a person's life. And, and he says this in verses 18 and 19. He says that they, he prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? You see, yeah, what Paul has in mind is not knowledge, an amorphous thing. But it, it actually, you know, the rubber meets the road. Knowledge makes a difference. It has an impact in a person's life. It's not a mystical vision of God. But what Paul has in mind is they, he wants them to see how their lives fit into God's plan for the world. And so he identifies these three facets. The hope to which he's called you, right? This knowledge of God manifests itself in three ways. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, I want you to know, I think these things are interrelated. And I think the first two are really, really close to each other. They are it's almost a question for me whether Paul means the same thing by them. That's how close they are. But he does have three things. We're going to take them one by one. And, and the first one is pretty cool. I love this. The hope of his calling. Now, do you all know what the God's call is? You know, I'm called to ministry. Right? And we, as a young man, I wrestled with that. Am I really called to ministry? How do you know if God's calling you to ministry? I had a friend in college who felt he was called to singleness. He felt he was called to singleness. He's married now. I will say that. He's married now. But people have callings, right? People have different callings in life. But what Paul means here is something different. What Paul talks about when he talks about God's call is God's public invitation to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ for salvation, right? That is the call of the gospel, that God is sending out over the face of the earth through people like y'all, through people like me. As the Holy Spirit takes us different places in our careers, he brings us in contact with people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. And when we say, hey, have you ever trusted Christ for your salvation? The Holy Spirit is working through our words 
to move in their hearts to call them to faith. We invite them, but the Holy Spirit is drawing them near. That's what Paul is talking about, the, the hope of the calling, the calling to trust in Christ, to live for Jesus now and forever. And when God calls, we should answer. But Paul's main point about the hope of the calling is not the call itself, but the hope. And some Bibles say the, the hope to which he has called you. Not the hope of the calling, but the hope to which he's called you. And hope is a different thing entirely. I mean, in the New Testament, it functions in two ways, as a verb and a noun. We hope as Christians. It's something we do. But we also have a hope, something we possess. As a verb, hope means to have your confident expectations set on God. It's not like the birthday candles or maybe Father's Day wishes that you might have. Hey, I really hope my family got me this for Father's Day. Or when you blow out your candles, I really hope I get the present I've always wanted. I hope it snows at Christmas time. I hope, I hope, I hope. Those are, those are our hopes. Those are thoughts and prayers out into the wind. That's hope in a human sense. But in a biblical sense, to have hope is to have a confident expectation that God is going to come through. That he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And so we live our lives hoping, trusting, banking on God. But then as a noun, hope takes on an entirely different flavor. It's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 when he says, that God's called, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's what Paul talks about in Colossians 1 verse 27 when he says that God's chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the New Testament, a Christian's hope, in the noun sense, the hope that we possess, is the unshakable knowledge that one day God intends to raise our dead bodies out of the ground and to give us the same kind of resurrection life that Jesus possesses now and forever. That death is not the end. That whatever happens in this life, my hope is that I'll be with Christ forever. That he will raise me up again and give life to what is dead. That is a Christian's hope. And when Paul says he wants the Ephesians to know the hope to which God has called them, that's what he has in mind. He wants them to know what God's plan is for them. That God's plan is bigger than the 60 or 70 years they're going to live their lives on earth. That God has called them to something greater than that. He's called them to an everlasting life. And we know that's the case because when Paul turns the corner in Ephesians in chapter 4, we're going to see it in a few weeks ago, he does so by saying, Therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That when a Christian knows what God's purpose is for them, their final destination with Christ forever, it gives meaning to the life we live right now. That we want to live into the thing that God promises to make us. That we want to live that resurrection life even now, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. So Paul wants the Ephesians to know what is the hope of their calling. And could there be a more important time for us to rediscover that hope? We are living through an epidemic of hopelessness. Do people have any confident expectation that life is going to be better next year than it is this year? 
I'd say it's opposite. People expect things just to get worse. And the problem with that is that it even gets to us. Even we, God's people, we see the world falling apart and we just expect completely that this is the way things are going to be. It's hopeless. What can you do? But Paul says we need to know the hope to which we've been called. That we must be a people of hope. After that, Paul goes into the riches of his glorious inheritance. This is the second facet of the knowledge of God that Paul wants us to have. Now earlier, Paul has already talked about inheritance. He talked about it in two ways. Last week we saw that we are God's inheritance. That he has chosen us for his own portion. That he loves us. We are his people. We belong to him. But in verses 13 and 14, Paul also says we've been sealed by the Spirit in Christ for an inheritance that we'll receive on the last day. So I think what Paul means here when he talks about the glorious inheritance is the inheritance that we are going to receive from God, which is all the good things that God has stored up for us in heaven. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, that it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. And so I think that's what Paul means here, that, that as he traces out all these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, he understands that those are just a foretaste of what God intends to give us in the end. And if you think about the descriptions that we read of heaven in the book of Revelation, which is, the, I meant to say this earlier, Revelation, that's that word, it's the unveiling of God's plan for the end of human history. But if you read the descriptions of heaven, streets of gold, There'll be no tears. Um, those who enter in the gates of the heavenly city are given the leaves of the tree of life to live forever. I mean, it is wonderful. What God intends to do for us goes beyond anything we could ever ask or think. No mind has, can even comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what Paul has in mind, a gloriously rich inheritance. He wants us to know that. To know what God intends to give us. Because get this, the Christian who knows the riches of God's glorious inheritance, what's ours in Christ, feels free to store up for themselves treasures in heaven. Because they know that this life isn't all there is. They're free to give generously to those who are in need. They're free to invest their time in the people around them. Not... not investing their time in the rat race trying to accumulate more because the person with the most toys at the end of life wins. That's not how it works. And the Christian who understands that God's inheritance stored up for us in heaven is greater than we could ever think is free from the worldly mindedness that so often brings us down. We're free to do as Paul did and count all things as loss for the sake of Christ. A person who understands the glorious riches of God's inheritance is free to follow through on Paul's charge to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a certainty to that. I don't know if you know that. But when we read things like that, 
When Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's no asterisk in my Bible. Certain terms and conditions apply. Those are the proved credit only. There is a certainty to the promises of God. The glorious inheritance that God's given you is yours in Christ. That will happen for you. I don't know when. may happen soon. may happen later. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's why John can say, what we will be is not yet obvious. But when he appears, we will be like he is. And therefore, he says, the person who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. And so Paul knows, John knows, all the, all the apostles, take, take your pick. They all know that when we understand the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ, it absolutely changes the way we live. But the third thing Paul says is key. Because I tell you there's certainty in it, but how can you be so sure, Brad? How, how do you know that? How do you know that it's certain? Well, Paul says it rests on the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Yeah, I mean, if it rested on our ability to see it through, there would be no certainty. I, I'm, I'm a fickle person. My perspective, hopes, dreams, they all change, really. Just moment by moment sometimes. But with God, his power is what sustains the promise. And so Paul says, he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now power, you've heard this. I'm not the first preacher to tell you that power is from the Greek word dunamis, from which we get the English word dynamite. And I like that. My preacher, my pastor who mentored me, he used to always say that, and I loved it. Um, but that's not quite the case. Because isn't dynamite destructive and explosive? You stack your dynamite there to clear out a mountain because we need a new road or to demolish a building because it's reached the end of its useful life that's dynamite it's destructive you run you take cover you say fire in the hole that's dynamite but God's power is actually better than that because it's carefully directed and aimed at a specific goal he says it's directed toward us who believe. That's God's power, carefully aimed towards you. It's that power which enables you to do all things through Christ who gives you strength. It's that power which frees you up from having to fake it till you make it. To join Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, to understand that Jesus looks you in the face and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness gives you permission to boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. That's the power of God, the power of God which brings us to the end, which provides certainty to our inheritance, to the hope that we've set our minds on. Now, I, I like this quote I came across this week from a 16th century German theologian. And get this, this is a good one to write down. Maybe you can give this to your kids and grandkids for their, their babies' names. Erasmus Sarcarius. And I was trying to pronounce that last one. I kept saying Erasmus Sarcasticus, which is, you know, would be a good name for some people too. But this is what he says. He says, the most important application of this verse 
is that we should know the devil, death, sin, hell, damnation, and the world have all been overcome as far as we're concerned. And they're unable to harm us. Because we know that God is protecting, guarding, and defending us. They don't make them like that anymore. That is a wonderful reminder. Everything's been overcome as far as we're concerned. I mean, it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like it. But Paul says that we need to know, finally, what God has done in Christ. Because this power is nothing to be trifled with. Did you see in verses 20 through 23 what Paul said this power has accomplished in Christ? He says he worked this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, that's the power we're talking about here. The power that saw a dead man's body in a tomb and was able to raise him up again. And it should be said, Jesus did that. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come forth. But Lazarus died again. He went on living longer than, I guess, longer than he did, and then he went on living some more, but he died again. But Jesus will never die again. What God did in raising Jesus from the grave is totally different than what Jesus did for Lazarus. God raised Jesus up and conquered death and set him at the place of authority in heaven over everything, over things in heaven, things on earth, over every power and dominion, over every name that's name. That's the power we're talking about. The power that raised Christ and exalted him at the right hand of God. And these are facts that the Ephesians should have known. And facts that probably you know too. These are facts that are part and parcel of the gospel that Paul preached. Everywhere he went, he talked about the resurrected and exalted Christ. In Acts 17, which happens right around the same time as Paul's preaching his first sermons in Ephesus, that's how he leads in to the truth about Jesus. He says on, the, on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, he says that God has appointed him to be a judge over all mankind. That he has the place of authority to judge the conduct of humanity. This is what they should have known. But Paul reminds them in case they had forgotten. God is powerful. And he's powerful for you. The same power that God displayed in Christ is the power that enables you day by day to stay on course towards the hope you've set your heart on. It's your confidence in receiving the inheritance that God has promised you. And so Paul prayed that they would know that power, and believe it, and trust it. And so from these three facets, from these three types of knowledge, we see that what Paul wants for the Ephesians is a spirit-given, ever-deepening knowledge of how God is working in us and how he has worked in Christ. That's Paul's prayer life. I think it tells you a lot about the man. And last summer, when I was praying through my sermon series for the 2019-2020 school year, came to Ephesians 1:15 through 23 in my quiet time. And I knew immediately 
This has to be our prayer as a church, to know God more. And of course, I couldn't have known, nobody could have known, that we'd be living when we're living in a pandemic with social upheaval. Nobody could have known that. And I don't pretend to know what the significance is of those two things. I'm not going to try to read the, between the lines or anything. But I can tell you this, that the danger of not knowing God, whether in times of peace or in times of change, is really, really dangerous. God told uh, his people through the prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, you might want to write that down, you can read this whole chapter later. But this is how he pronounced a word against his people Israel. He said, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. That's a pretty depressing word. But I know that place. Not in ancient Israel, but here. This is where no knowledge of God gets you every time. And we're bearing the fruit, the seeds we've sown. But then you take a step back. You say, okay, that is where a place can get if there's no knowledge of God in the land. But what would happen if a group of people like us, in person and at home, decided to make Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 our constant prayer? What would happen? What if we made it our commitment to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? What if our knowledge of God's character, His work in Christ, what He intends to do in us, what He's promised to bring us to someday, what if that became the way we saw the world, the lenses through which we looked on everything, the rubric that we use to make our decisions, what's going to make me know God more? What's going to bring me closer to Him? What if that became the rubric we used for the choices we made? Well, I think it changed everything. Just 40 people committed to living God's way, to knowing Him more and more each day, and allowing that knowledge to change their lives would absolutely transform a community like ours. It started home, where husbands and wives would start acting differently to each other. They'd understand that God has an inheritance for them in heaven. Therefore, winning the argument doesn't matter as much. It's not the end-all, be-all. God's got something better in store. Moms and dads and stop trying to parent in their own strength, knowing that there's a greater strength available. At any moment's notice, the Spirit of God gives the power of God for the people of God. It'd transform us at home, and it'd spread out from there. Everything would be different. And eventually, the people whose day-to-day -day existence is characterized by no knowledge of God, what Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 2, is death. You're dead in trespasses and sins. When he says you are <clears throat> strangers from God, you are without hope and without God in the world. 
When people who are like that start to see people who know God experiencing God's blessings in their life because they're living His way, they want to be a part of that. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to double down on your pursuit of knowledge of God. Don't go online and buy a, you know, distance learning course on the New Testament. I'm not talking academic, intellectual knowledge. I'm talking about personal, intimate, relational knowledge. To know Him personally. Double down on that. You know, Paul's prayer got answered for the Ephesians. He prayed that they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. And his letter was an answer to that prayer. What he does through the rest of it is unveil and open up the mysteries of God that all along it was God's purpose to save all people through the death of his son Jesus. And so as they had that letter publicly read in their little church service, and as they meditated on what the apostle had said, that spirit of revelation opened it up to help them see the truth. That Paul's preaching rightly. We need to commit ourselves to this. And that's the way God still works. God still answers prayers for greater insight into his will when we open up his word and read it. 100% of the time. And so double down by knowing God in his word. Reading who he is, what he's done, and what the life he's called us to live. But it always begins with an initial act to know God. Some people don't know God. I don't know, in a room like this, maybe there isn't anybody. Maybe online, somebody's at home. But you need to ask yourself, do I know God in that way? Do I know him relationally and personally? Or do I just know about him? Do I know facts about him? Or do I really know him? I believe a person who knows him will live the way he's called them to live. It may not be perfect, but the overarching direction of a person who knows God will be toward God. And so evaluate your life that way. And if I can help you in any way to pursue a spirit-given, ever-deepening knowledge of what God's doing in your life and what he's done in Christ, let me know.